This weekend, the city of Dallas played host to an important piece of musical history. It was an upright Steinway piano. It was the same piano that John Lennon used to compose what is probably his most famous song, the song Imagine. Imagine is a remarkable song. John Lennon wrote it in May of 1971, and he recorded it in a single session in New York City a couple months later. It was an immediate hit, and its impact was enormous. Bono, the lead singer of U2, credited this song as the reason for his career. Jimmy Carter, the president, once observed that in many countries that he traveled to around the world, he heard Lennon's song being used, quote, almost equally with national anthems. Since its release, musicians as diverse as Liza Minnelli, Neil Young, Stevie Wonder, and Lady Gaga have all recorded their own versions of it in tribute. And just this past weekend, crowds of people gathered in downtown Dallas to view the piano that was used in the writing of this song. But what is it that makes Imagine such a popular song? Why did it have the mass appeal and impact that it did? People sometimes criticize Imagine for its optimism and its hypocrisy, which is fair. I mean, remember, we are talking about a song written by a rich rock star living in one of the most developed countries in the world, suggesting that all the world's problems could be fixed if only we would get rid of countries and possessions. But that's not what made this song so popular. People don't love Imagine because they think John Lennon really has figured out the mechanism, the way to bring about world peace. People love this song because of the world that it asked them to imagine. It is a world of beauty, a world of people living in peace, a world that has no need for greed or hunger, a world of unity, of sharing, of brotherhood. In some ways, you could say that Imagine is actually a very biblical song because the Bible also asks us to imagine a world of perfect peace, free of suffering, free of conflict, free of pain. Father Paul reminded us of this invitation to imagine a new world in his sermon last week when he called our attention to an image in the book of Revelation, the image of a new heaven and a new earth. This morning, I want to continue where Father Paul left off by drawing us and by asking us to fix our imagination on another image in the book of Revelation. It's the image of a meal, a wedding meal, a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we come across the mention of this meal in Revelation chapter, 20, chapter 19, we see that it is the cause of immense celebration. Before the meal itself is even mentioned, John tells us that he hears a sound a deafening sound, a sound that he can only describe as the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I have a confession to make, uh, which is that I've never, I've never been to a Texas A&M football game, and I know some of you will think less of me for it. But the sound that John says he hears here 
is very similar to I, what I think Kyle Field probably sounded like on a night last November when Kendrick Rogers caught the game-winning pass against LSU in the seventh overtime. Yeah, I thought that might get a reaction. This is the sound, the ear-splitting roar of a crowd possessed and overcome by pure joy. That is the sound John hears when the marriage supper of the Lamb is announced, the deafening roar of unbridled joy. But joy like that doesn't come out of nowhere. Joy like that has a history. And if you want to understand why this meal causes such celebration and ignites this response, you have to understand the story that leads up to it. And this is not just any story. This is the story, the story of the world. And just as it ends, so it begins with a meal. In the book of Genesis, we read that God creates the whole world and that everything he creates in it is very good. And last of all, he creates a man and a woman. Creatures made in his own image. Creatures that he can talk with and walk with. Now, very little is said in Genesis about what conversations may have transpired between God and these first two humans. All that we are told is that God put them in a garden, that he told them to have children, and that he gave them something to eat. And when I say he gave them something to eat, I don't just mean he gave them basic nourishment. I mean he fed them really well. And this is an important thing to remember because sometimes we're tempted to think that God doesn't care very much about basic things like food and how it tastes. Sometimes we imagine God is too preoccupied with more weighty matters like governing the nations and guiding the planets along their courses to give much thought to such small, simple pleasures of life like the sweet flavor of a ripe peach or the intoxicating smell of fresh rosemary. But that's not true. And anytime we begin to think this way, we just need to go back to the book of Genesis because Genesis says that the same God who created the whole universe also planted a garden. And in that garden, he caused to spring up every kind of tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. If God had wanted just to give Adam and Eve enough food that they could survive, he could have just planted a grove of orange trees, you know, or maybe like a row or two of cabbages to balance things out. But he didn't. He planted a garden, a garden of beauty, a garden filled with more tastes and more smells than we can now imagine. And then he invited them to eat. In his book, The Supper of the Lamb, the Anglican priest Robert Farah Capon asks why it is that onions, onions with their diverse textures and their pungent aroma and their variety of culinary uses, why is it that onions even exist at all? And Capon comes up with a simple answer. God likes onions, he writes, therefore they are. <laughs> the fit, the colors, the smells, the tensions, the tastes, the textures, the lines, the shapes are a response, not to some forgotten decree that there may as well be onions as turnips, but to his present delight, his intimate 
and immediate joy in all you have seen and the thousand other wonders you do not even suspect. God set Adam and Eve in this garden of culinary delights and he invited them to join him in the delight that he felt for the world he had made. Now sadly, as we know, this is not where the story ends. It quickly takes a turn for the worse and that turn also involves a meal. When Eve takes a piece of fruit from the tree and she gives it to Adam and the two of them eat, everything changes. Because in that gesture, they have rejected God and they have bought into the serpent's lie. The lie that says God doesn't really want what is best for them. The lie that says God wants to keep the best food for himself. And this rejection brings consequences for Adam and Eve, consequences that have direct bearing on their future eating. Remember, up until this point, they have dined on the most amazing, delicious cuisine imaginable, and they have done so at their leisure. Now, after they make this decision, God tells Adam that as a consequence, Adam and Eve must eat from the plants of the field where thorns and thistles grow and that their bread will come by the sweat of their own brows. But that isn't the worst part. The real tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin against their creator isn't just that they must learn to eat substandard fare and do their own cooking. It's that they are no longer welcome at the table of God. They have lost the intimacy that they once had. And this loss of intimacy, this break in table fellowship continues on as you read through the rest of the biblical story. It's not that God has ceased to care about his people or that he ceased to be kind or that he ceased to even feed them. To the contrary, despite their repeated acts of disobedience, God does continue to feed his people good food and they continue to eat. But there is a difference. They cannot eat with him now. The Levitical priests in the law are allowed to eat in God's presence as representatives of his people, but the people must eat at a distance. Their sin and their shame prevents them from taking a seat at God's table. If you keep this background in mind, if this is the story that you're thinking of, then you can understand why people found Jesus to be such an astounding presence. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus wasn't just his powers of healing or the fact that he went around telling people they were forgiven of their sins or even that he went around saying and implying that he himself was God. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus is what he did with food. Jesus fed people quite miraculously. He provided bread and fish for thousands of people who were following him around, much like God had done for Israel in the wilderness. But Jesus didn't just feed people. He ate with them. It really is quite amazing how frequently meals are mentioned in the Gospels. I mean it. Try, try reading through the Gospels sometime, paying specific attention to just how often the subject of eating comes up. Jesus begins and he ends his ministry at a meal. His first miracle is done at a wedding in Cana at a wedding feast. And he spends his last evening with his disciples sitting around, reclining around a table, having a supper. 
And in between those two events, we are told again and again of times Jesus eats with people, times he eats with men and with women, times he eats in the home of Pharisees and in the home of tax collectors. Jesus eats so frequently that people start calling him a drunk and a glutton. And this is especially true in Luke's presentation of Jesus. As one New Testament scholar recently noted, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Now, in and of itself, having a meal with someone sitting down at a table is a meaningful gesture. But with Jesus, it takes on added significance. Because no one, no one since the garden had sat down and eaten a meal with God at a table. And then here comes Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. And what does he do? He comes and he sits down and he eats with sinners. And then notice what Jesus does when he comes back to life. What is the... We, we just read a passage from the Gospel of John this morning. One of the first times that Jesus sees his disciples after he's risen again. And what is he doing? What is he doing with his disciples who, remember, had deserted him, had abandoned him in his moment of greatest need, had denied him at the first opportunity to make a witness of who Jesus is. He greets them and he cooks for them. He makes them a meal, and he sits down, and he eats with them. That's the history that you need to keep in mind if you want to understand why this raucous joy and celebration is going on in Revelation chapter 19. This ear-splitting celebration that is taking place when the marriage supper of the Lamb is announced makes sense once you understand that this meal is a meal long in the making. Finally, at long last, after all of this history, the bride, we are told, has made herself ready. Or rather, it seems that maybe someone else has made her ready. I don't know if you noticed, but there's an ambiguity in the language between verses 7 and 8 of this passage. Verse 7 says that the bride has made herself ready. But verse 8 suggests that it is not actually the bride's doing. Verse 8 says that her fine clothes, her righteous deeds, have been given to her. They have been granted to her by someone else. Someone else has clothed her. Someone else has made her clean. And because of that, her shame has been taken away. Now, for the first time, she doesn't have to look down or look away in shame when the bridegroom approaches. Now, she looks him full in the face with nothing but pure freedom and pure delight. And now the time has finally come when they sit down together and eat. The book of Revelation asks us to imagine this scene of celebration and joy and feasting, much like Lenin asked us to imagine a world of peace. But unlike the vision of John the Beetle, which is never really much more than a dream and a hope, the vision of John the seer, John the author of Revelation, is a promised fact of our future. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. Of that we can be sure. And when it comes, it will be a grand and glorious feast. As the English church father, the Venerable Bede, noted when he was talking about this passage, there's a reason it's called a supper. It means it's not a light lunch. 
It's a big meal. It is the meal to surpass all meals. But what should we do with this vision when we see it? How are we supposed to respond to that? In closing, I want to offer two answers to that question, two ways that we are called to respond to this vision John has shown us in Revelation. The first thing we need to do is recognize that this vision is not just given for our information or entertainment. The purpose of this vision, much like the rest of the whole book of Revelation, is so that we will endure in our faith and so that we will make sure that we are present when the time of feasting comes. Jesus himself speaks of the wedding feast, not infrequently in parables and his teaching in the Gospels, but whenever Jesus talks about this final wedding feast, he makes it clear that although all people are invited, not all will be present. Some people will not share in the celebration. Some will not experience the bride's joy. So what about you? Will you be present on that day? Will you have a seat at the table and join and share in the joy and the food? This is a question that each of us must respond to on our own. And every single Sunday when we gather together, we are given an opportunity to respond to that invitation yet again. Because every Sunday we come up and we gather around the Lord's table to receive the promise that he offers us. Every time we eat the bread and drink the wine in faith, we are receiving the promise of God, the promise of the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of healing, and the promise that we will one day sit with him and eat to our heart's content. The Eucharist is not just a memorial of our Lord's death, and it's not even just a present communion with him. It is a foretaste and a pledge of that meal, that much greater meal that is yet to come. And just like that much greater meal, so now, so today, you are invited to come and receive, not because you have made yourself worthy. You haven't. If you're confused on that point, just remember the prayer that we pray in Lent. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs from under your table. You are invited to come and receive God's gift of Jesus Christ the one who clothes you with his own righteousness and makes you pure. That is our first response to the vision, to receive this invitation, to believe God's promise, to make sure that we will be ready when the time comes. But we must go further than this. It is not enough for us to just receive the invitation ourselves. We are also called to join Jesus in inviting others to share in this festivity and in this celebration. And this can take different forms, this invitation. Sometimes it takes the form of verbal witness. You need to tell people about Jesus. You need to tell people about what it means to follow him. There's no way for people to know unless we tell them. But Jesus didn't just go around telling people about himself and verbally inviting them to the feast, he also, he also enacted that invitation by sitting down with them and eating with them. And as Jesus' followers, we are called to do the same. That is why the practice of hospitality is something that's so important for Christians to engage in. 
We show hospitality to other people. We invite them into our lives and we eat with them, not just because this is a polite thing to do, and as Christians, we should be polite. We do it because hospitality is a parable, an enactment of the gospel itself. The hospitality we show to others reflects the hospitality that God has shown to us. When we eat with others, when we welcome them to our tables, we are showing them the nature of our God. And that's one reason, among others, that we have for giving thanks for our mothers today. I have many reasons to be grateful for my mother. My mother clothed me and cared for me. She taught me how to read and she taught me how to laugh. She listened to me. She comforted me. But one of the most basic things that she did for me, day in and day out, is that my mother fed me. She made me food, and she sat down and she ate with me. Now, there were days when I didn't deserve the food that my mother made me. Days when I had treated her with contempt. Days when I took advantage of her and I failed to acknowledge the sacrifices she made. But even on the days I didn't deserve it, my mother fed me. And even on the days when I had wronged her or hurt her, she made a place for me at the table because that's what mothers do. And that may seem like a rather trite thing to say. Couldn't I come up with something better to say about mothers today than just that they feed their children? Well, there are other things to say, but the day-to-day ritual of feeding and eating is no mere trifle. In this small act of daily service, our mothers are giving us a window into the very heart of God by feeding us and eating with us on both our good days and our bad. Our mothers awaken us to the character of true love, of the love that feeds us even when we are unworthy, of the love that welcomes us to close fellowship, of the love that takes pleasure in the simple joy of food, and of our company. So let us give thanks for our mothers today. And let us give thanks for the God whose character they reflect. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.